OWC Radio is sponsored by Otherworld Computing. Visit MaxSales.com and check out the new Thunderblade X8 drives for the world's fastest speeds. Work smarter, faster, and more creatively with OWC Solutions. If you are a writer or you work with writers and you want to get better at it, I think you'll find this next interview very interesting. It's a conversation, a very candid conversation, that I had with Whitney Resides and Mark Brown about a project that they're working on together called Redneck Army. Their experiences as writers, the awards that they've won, the productions they've worked on. And I had questions for them about what is the writer's room like? What does it take to succeed? And I think they give us all a lot of guidance Hope you enjoy this one, and thank you for listening. Welcome back. It's time for OWC Radio, Tech Talk with Creatives, Conversations with host Serena Catania. Mark Brown and Whitney Resides, I am so happy to have you back, my favorite writer-producer friends, and I'm, I'm excited today to talk about one of your projects, The Redneck Army. But before we get into all of that, let's tell our audience a little bit about each of you and where you come from and how you got started as a writer producer. So Whitney, ladies first. <laughs> oh, goodness. How did I get into all of this? I feel like I was just born for it. To be honest, I feel like my whole life has been like, I granted, I started on the stage as an actor. So I started acting on stage when I was four years old. And storytelling just was in my blood, I guess. Like I grew up always wanting to entertain my family, whether it was little skits after dinner. I would put on a dinner show. I would say to all my family, I'd be like, get ready. I'm going to entertain everybody. And I just grew up always telling stories. I actually wrote my first screenplay when I was five, five or six. Oh, and I love I, that. <laughs> I still have it's in my closet. I came across it a few years ago and I was like, man, it's, I didn't realize that screenwriting was always with me, but it has been, it's just been there from the beginning. But I just grew up in this world. I, I always loved performing, writing movies. My family, I've, I've told many people this, but my family was not big in taking us to like sporting events. They were big in taking us to the movies. Like that is how we bonded as a family. And I just always grew up loving cinema and movies and stories. And it wasn't until, so I graduated in 2018 from the University of Tennessee, Knoxville with a degree in business management. And I knew after that, that I was going to hopefully combine my worlds of storytelling along with business in some, in some sense. So now, I, yeah, so now I've just fallen in love also with behind the camera work. I've fallen in love with producing. I even love running crafty and catering, just anything that a set needs. I just genuinely love it. I don't care what it is. If we're making a movie, I'm happy as can be. Was it hard during the strike not to be on the set, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was, I mean, I'm sure we all felt the same way. It was like nothing I've ever experienced before. I've just yeah. always been, I'm Enneagram 3. So I've always been just, I have to have a project. I have to have my hands in something. Yeah. And the world just stopped. It was an interesting moment for me to, one, realize how important it is to, genuinely love where you're living and love what you're doing. That kind of was a realization for me. And really though, that's when Mark and I met was 2020, the pandemic, our acting class was online and we met 
I had this script idea for many years, which was the Redneck Army, what came to be the Redneck Army. And Mark was a fantastic writer. I read a few of his screenplays and it really saved me because I was in, I started going in a dark place in 2020, not knowing what to do. And I was like, you know what? Why wait for that story to be told? Why not, you know, see if, if Mark wants to come on and collaborate with me, like, why not see if we can create something during this time? And then luckily I pitched him like everything I'd thought about the story I'd seen in my head for years. He was lucky enough. uh, I was lucky enough that he was, you know, able to come on board and we just started writing and we spent Mark long. Did we spend on zooms? Oh my God. I, I actually, that's, that's really funny that you, you said that after all these years of, of, of writing together, what now we kind of think of, think of like, I was thinking when we got on the zoom, I'm like, Oh my God, you know, like today is Spotify rap day. I'm like, Whitney and I have to be two of the biggest zoom users out there. Zoom needs to wrap <laughs> us. Cause going back to, to when we started this project. And I think this is just kind of who we are as writers and everything. We, we ran a two person writers room. I mean, we're really proud of saying this. We did exactly what every writer in the world was doing during the during the pandemic. We got on Zoom and we spent hours and hours and hours character arcing, story arcing, breaking story and talking through this. There were times, Whitney, I mean, we were we were like on Zoom at like five o'clock in the morning. It was just, I mean, I love it at the time. And, and I mean, and that's what for anyone out there who doesn't know the TV writing process, that's the way TV gets written. Yeah. Groups of people get together in a writer's room and you, it's called breaking story. And you've, you've got kind of the sandbox that you're going to play in, which is what your show's about, what the story engine is. But then you get these creative people together and it's a lot of, well, what if this happened? What if that happened? Yeah. Yeah. Bouncing it off each other, spending a lot of time with those characters. Yeah. Just getting to know them. And we just... Gosh, we spent hours and hours and hours. I want to just back up just a little bit because, Mark, I want you to tell people about you. What what did little Mark like to do and how well, did you get started? I don't back to, this up. I want to know. It's, it's a similar story to Whitney's. I, I love my, my mom, who's a much better storyteller than I am, claims that I taught myself to read and write. I love stories from the very beginning, but I fell in love with Star Trek and the Spider-Man comic books. and. I don't remember exactly how, but I remember one day realized like, wait a minute, somebody like made that up. You know, somebody <laughs> made up Star Trek. Somebody actually wrote this. Of course, it was Gene Roddenberry. And <laughs> I'm like, well, if they can do it, why can't I? And so I just started like getting scraps of paper. And it's really interesting now that I think about it. I guess it was just like watching the television shows. I just like from the beginning kind of wrote in like a really rudimentary sort of screenplay format. I mean, I understood it's like, okay, there's action and then somebody's got to say something. And and so I would write out these scripts kind of for me that I would hide because I was afraid that especially my older sister would get them and make fun of me. (laughs) But (laughs) I was not the brightest kid in the world. So I like hit them under the towels in the bathroom that we all shared. (laughs) So she found them anyway, right? I came in one morning and they were gone and I'm like, (gasps) oh no. Oh no. She's oh, found no. them. And so I was like miserable all day at school and couldn't concentrate or anything and got home and kind of sat on the couch, just kind of waiting for her to like drop the hammer on me. And she finally walked by and like just dropped them on the couch beside me. And she said, not bad. And <gasps> kept walking. Oh, I love it. I love like, it. Huh. 
maybe I can do this. So I, you know, if I'm being honest, I kept writing stories and everything throughout school and everything because it was a way to get attention, you know, and I would write stories and my friends would read them and, you know, we'd all get a big laugh out of them, this, that, and the other. And then, you know, wound up going to college, got a master's degree in creative writing, went out and got like a real job for for years doing um, communications and politics. Finally got to the point where I'm like, eh, you know, this is kind of getting old. I want to get back to what I really love, and that's screenwriting. And um, I love motorcycles. I'm a big motorcycle rider. And I got really, I mean, just totally lucky. A bunch of the, the staff people for the show Nashville. Some of the writers and the line producer and some other people, they were big motorcycle riders. And we got to know each other. I think we first met down at Leaper's Fork on a Saturday when we were all riding. And so I started talking to them like, OK, you know, I kind of think what I'm doing is like running its course. I'd really like to get into screenwriting. How would I do this? And got some really great advice from all of them. And one of the things they said is like, if you can afford to do it, you need to just immerse yourself in writing, read books, take classes, and someone suggested take acting classes and mm-hmm. learn what makes a good role. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when you take acting classes, you'll learn what actors are looking for in roles, and that'll make you a much better writer. And mm-hmm. then like Whitney said, we wound up in in the same acting studio, and she didn't tell the full story. So what happened? <laughs> Uh-oh, here we go. The truth comes I can't, out. I, 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 <laughs> I, got I want to know into, all in, the gossip. <laughs> I got moved into the advanced class, which Whitney was already in, and we were on Zoom. And so I come in, and this is like a really intimidating situation anyway. So I'm like, okay, I'm not <laughs> sure that I should be in here, blah, 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 blah. The very first scene on the Zoom, and I can't even remember the show, Whitney. Whitney was like the daughter of the governor of Louisiana. It was an unproduced pilot. That was during the time where Caroline was having us do unproduced pilots and scripts, which was so, so interesting. And I don't I don't remember the name of it or even what happened to it. But yeah, that's why I don't because it wasn't. It wasn't <laughs> but your character, she was being like tortured to death by this satanic cult. Oh, so the gosh. very first scene is, I mean, and she just kills it. I mean, she's screaming and she's crying and, and blah, blah, blah. It's just an awesome performance. And so I'm like, oh, my God. And then following that, the very next scene, this friend of ours, T, who's an amazing actor, does the Maggie the Cat monologue from Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Oh, wow. And just kills it. And there's all this just repressed sexuality and emotion. And she's crying. I'm like. Oh my God, what, what the hell am I doing in this class? I'm <laughs> talking here with these people. They're just amazingly talented. And I almost quit, but I did. So, what was your part, though? What part did you play? Uh, I did the America is Not Great monologue from the newsroom. Mm, I nice. I did not do it very well. <laughs> but, you know, uh, I have this theory that what we love to do when we're very young is really what we're meant to do. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't acknowledge that they don't indulge that and they end up because of family pressures or societal pressures or whatever they end up going into a whole different field and if they're lucky they come back to it right yeah Yeah. i know when i was little i (laughs) i was uh in in elementary school in the summer i was directing plays Yeah. And 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 I remember one time my parents couldn't find me. I was really little. I had left the house and I climbed up into an apple tree and I was writing. I didn't even really know how to write. I was pretending like I was writing. They couldn't find me. 
But those are things that years later, you look back on that and you think, you know, um, we were doing Little Mermaid from the comic books. And I cast my brother as the prince and sent him around the neighborhood with a little bell to to get people to come. And we performed it in the backyard. And I made fifteen dollars. Did you really? Nice. Yeah. Sure. nice. <laughs> so wow. So you got paid to produce at, a, at an early age. Yeah, I was. I was. Yeah, I was. Uh, I hit hit it right on the head. But <laughs> uh, but you guys have won some awards. I want to know about that. You're very yes, very sir. good at this. We met through Catalyst. I got introduced to you after you had won. Tell us about the award. We actually wrote the entire first season of Redneck Army, but then we had enough sense and enough guidance from other people that we went back and we polished the pilot. And then we took it out on the competition circuit and just kind of dropping in some tips as we go along. One tip, we, we, we've we been hugely fortunate in running across people like you and others who've been really generous with their time and their knowledge. But we were told, it's like, okay, make sure your script is just airtight. It's market ready. It's ready to go. And then take it out on the competition circuit and do your research and go to the competitions where you actually have industry people reading your scripts. And if it's mm-hmm. a festival, you can go and actually meet industry people. Mm-hmm. And so starting in um, what June of 2022, Whitney, we finished top five in the Screencraft True Story and Public Domain competition. And got into some, got in front of some people there, and we were meeting people. We came across Catalyst on a podcast, the uh, the Screenwriting Life podcast. Highly recommend it. They did a, a a show on the competitions that are worth it, and one of them they said Catalyst. And so we looked it up and decided to enter. And so we entered and won outstanding drama script. I'll tell yeah. another story on us. Just the way we are, we actually didn't even. We went to the festival because we'd been selected and we were there meeting people and we never even talked we about it. We were just happy, happy to be there, go we network. Happy to be there. <laughs> I've never been to Duluth before. I was like, we'll just go, you know, have a great time. Yeah. And yeah. We, for those of you who don't know, listening in, Catalyst is an amazing year-round program, but they also have a festival in Duluth, Minnesota, and it's specifically for episodic television. Episodic and it's, television. it's uh, as far as I know, it's the only one like that in the, the States, isn't it? The only one specifically yeah. dedicated yeah. to episodic. Yeah. I so. keep telling people it's been around for a few years, but it's really for television what Sundance was for film in the old days. Yes. And so it's very well respected. And for you to win that award means a lot because that there was some stiff competition. And it really did. And we didn't even spend like two seconds considering that we were going to win. So when we were sitting there at the award ceremony and Philip says, you know, I say JavaScript, Redneck Army. And we like kind of look at each other like, oh. Oh, we got to go talk now. Did you about faint? (laughs) I actually kind of like I think I blacked out when I stepped on stage. I don't remember. (laughs) Apparently, I gave a speech. I don't know what I said. Apparently, I did a little, like, woo at the end. (laughs) No recollection. None. (laughs) And I kind of, like, shoved Whitney out there. We were, like, walking up on stage. She's like, you want to go first? I'm like, no, you go. (laughs) That's funny. funny. You've had some success on the Blacklist, too. So the Blacklist is like the premier online platform for unproduced screenplays and feature scripts. Now they do two things. They've got what's called the black list, which is only for features that comes out once a year. That's the most popular unproduced feature scripts from industry people. And so the blacklist puts that together separately, but then they've also got their website where you can host scripts 
and get evaluations mm. and industry people can go through there and find scripts and find writers and everything too. When you do evaluations, they, they give you a numerical evaluation and then they give you a written analysis of strengths, weaknesses, and prospects on the market. If you can get five, eight plus evaluations, which not to brag, is really, really hard to do, then a script becomes what they call blacklist recommended. And it's considered like one of the top 1% of scripts they've ever had. Um, and they host your script free for as long as you want. So it was funny because, let me see, Whitney, in, we won Catalyst in October of 2002. And then in late November, we wound up getting our fifth eight on the blacklist. And became recommended by the blacklist. And we are still, what is it, Whitney? We're ranked like the 20th best pilot they've ever gotten. That's awesome. On the blacklist. Let me see. A guy named Franklin Leonard, who's a super he's a super nice guy. He started the blacklist in 2008, and then they launched their website in 2013. And so in the 10 years of the blacklist website, we're ranked as the 20th best pilot they've ever gotten. And so what that means is it's out there. Industry people can take a look at it. Uh, since the strike has ended, we've seen a real uptick in activity on the blacklist and getting some script views and downloads. And whatnot. We're kind of Our assumption is that people are getting ready for the, the holidays and then come back in January mm -hmm. and, and actually yeah. start talking to people. Yeah. This is a good time for us to tell people what is this about and, and what's the genesis of the redneck army well whitney was the genesis of the redneck army so why don't you why don't you kick us off there i mentioned earlier that i had had you know the script idea in my head for many years and i originally i was in high school at ap macroeconomics class shout out coach wellings for putting <laughs> on this documentary and he played a documentary one day and i think maybe it was just to i can't even remember if there was a lesson tied to it i don't know if he was just needing a break and putting on documentary. <laughs> they just want to sit in the back of the room and <laughs> and let you guys watch this. <laughs> I'm so I'm so thankful that he did though cuz I, I think all of my classmates had checked out but it started off just so cinematic. It was, you know, black screen and it, all you heard was the whistle of the canary, you know, pickaxes against the cave walls and then this a cappella woman singing this coal mining lullaby. And mm. I was just hooked. It started getting into the documentary about everything that happened in Made One West Virginia and in West Virginia with the Cold Wars back in 1920. And I just remember being mesmerized by a few things. Just one, this story about 10,000 armed coal miners going to war 100 years ago, just a few states over. Because I'm from Chattanooga, born and raised. I just never had heard about it. Just a few states over, I never heard about you know, a state of emergency being declared on West Virginia because of coal miners going to war. And so I was just deeply fascinated by that little forgotten piece of history. And then what these coal miners and their families and their children went through during this time, just treated like, you know, dogs just treated terribly. And the idea just kind of stuck with me. And for years, I was just thinking about the redneck army. I didn't even really know what I was kind of putting together in my mind, but I was putting together a screenplay. And for awesome. years, I would just Google Battle of Blair Mountain, Made One West Virginia. I would just Google anything to see movie in, in production, knowing that someone had to come across a story and tell it. And it wasn't until 2020 that, you know, pandemic hit, we were sitting there at home and I, 
I needed something. I, I, and I remember that story that was just always in the back of my head. And I was like, you know what? Why wait for someone else to tell the story? Why not you know, take it into my own hands? And then, of course, I just knew that Mark was going to be just such a great addition. I knew that the more minds on the project, the better. And I was very, very fortunate that whenever I pitched this little idea, he was able to, to come on board and help me flesh it all out and us create a pilot together and create the whole series. Now, at that time, were you thinking of it as a theatrical or as a, were you, did you immediately go to TV with it? I went feature film with it. Mm -hmm. I think because of how I had grew up going to the movies, I Mm -hmm. see typically not anymore, but I used to see every story in my head as a movie. And it wasn't until I started writing that I wasn't even halfway done with my act one. And I was, so many pages in, I was like, okay, yeah. I have way too much story here. Yeah. This is a feature film. This is a show. Yeah. That was my reaction when I first started reading it. There's a lot here. It's There's perfect a for a series. And that's, so what, Mark, that's why did you get involved? What attracted you to the oh, project? Couple things. One, Whitney's passion for the story. Mm-hmm. I mean, what the first when we got on that first Zoom, she spent three hours talking about this and everything that that was one thing and she started out saying you know i i think this is a feature but i'm not sure well three hours later i'm like no this is not a feature this is a television show uh so yeah it was her passion and some of the things that she brought to the story because we always make sure we tell everyone's like okay this is based on actual events but it's not a documentary we're Mm -hmm. doing a television show so there are some fictional characters we've telescoped some things but then just from a personal standpoint Hearing the story, I'm in kind of an interesting position that I kind of lived both sides of this. My 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 dad's side of the family is you know what we call small town rich folks. They ran a, a they ran a, a rock crushing and road building business in Springfield, Tennessee. My mom's dad actually worked for that company, and that's how oh, wow. my mom and dad met. Which my dad's mom was not very cool with initially because my dad was like dating the help and all sorts of other other issues. So I actually kind of saw both sides of this, how my granddad and his brothers, who were not bad people, but they felt that they could treat their employees any way they wanted because it was their company, you know, and then saw the other side of this from my mom's side of the family. And then also my mom's side of the family was very union. Now, mm-hmm. my dad, too, now, to finish the story there with my mom and dad, my dad wound up leaving his family, marrying my mom, and he became a truck driver and became a teamster. So mm-hmm. he was very, very union. And, wow. you know, frankly, the only reason he was able to make a living as a truck driver was because he was a teamster in the union you know, stood up for them and made sure they got a decent wage and health insurance and some other things. So, yeah, it was a combination of of those two things. And 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 like Whitney said, just the the knowledge that this is not what you get taught in American history. You know, no, it's, it's hidden. A, Seems to be hidden. I had never heard of it till I met the two. Right. And, OK, I mean, so and tell you, me you're in an elevator. What's the, well, clarify for us? What is the elevator pitch so that people listening can really understand? Because there's so much here. How do you talk about this in a way that people are going to understand where you're going with it? It's the story of people standing up to be treated like human beings mm-hmm. and saying, listen, you know, it's we deserve happiness. We deserve safe working conditions. Our kids deserve a better life. It's not all about, you know, the company making another dollar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? And that's one of the things that I know. Well, 
<laughs> and it's about and we always every elevator pitch we hit people with our our log line and, and let people know it's about ten thousand armed coal miners going to war with five thousand coal company mercenaries for a seven day shooting battle in the hills of West Virginia. There you go. We always you know make sure we drop that in, and then of course what Mark was saying, we let them know that it's just about people standing up for their rights, yeah. fighting for what's right, fighting for love, fighting for their families, fighting to not be treated like dogs. It's about right. valuing humanity. Valuing yeah. humanity, exactly. And people love stories for the characters, for the people. And one thing yeah. that we, we've said from the very beginning, no one cares about a faceless corporation versus a faceless union. This is about these characters. This is about right. Bill and Charlie and the things like, you know, the name Redneck Army comes from the fact that these people tied red bandanas around their necks as a sign of unity and said, look, we're not... The three primary groups were white, black, and Italian. We're not white, blacks, and Italians. We're all we're all rednecks. And yeah, there's just so much of, of that sort of thing in this story. That I you love that. To. I was say we got to take a, a a location scouting trip to West Virginia earlier this year and got to spend a little time on the ground up there and got to spend some time with. We actually got to tour a, a coal mine from the period with a couple of retired coal miners and the woman who runs the museum, her, her husband is a retired coal miner. And it was just so eye opening to, to actually like listen to them and hear their stories and kind of get a feel for the land and the people and what all this means. And it's up in, in Beckley, West Virginia. And it was one of the best trips I've ever taken. I mean, they even went as far to tell us about, the size rats that they had down in the coal mine. My grandfather was a coal miner in Belgium. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. my uncle, uh, during World War II, they were taken by the Nazis and kind of forced to work for the Germans in the coal mines. And I think I mentioned to you guys in one conversation, I finally, talking to you, put together why my mother loved canaries so much. Because they used the canaries to predict impending death from fumes. Right. Yeah. Or yeah. When that canary stopped singing, you knew to get out of that yeah. minus. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. two things, either you could die from, from breathing the gas or that gas was highly explosive. Yeah, and exactly. back in 1920, they had those gaslit lamps on their helmets and they also yeah. spooked a lot. So yeah. the whole thing could blow up. Scary. Yeah, my grandfather was the person that was in charge of all of the horses that they used to take down there. Because once the horses got down, they never went back up again. It's terrible. All day ever again. Yeah. Oh, it's so sad. It was one of the first things Whitney told me about, and I'll never forget. Yeah. She told me about the 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 mules yeah. and, and said what she just says, like those poor things. Once they took them down there, they never brought oh, them back yeah. out. They would go blind because they never. Yeah. They never, never saw the light of day again. And I always thought about the men going down, taking that mm-hmm. one last look up to the sky. I, not knowing, am I going to see this again? Will I see my family again? Yeah. Judgment. Did they show you how the men would um, hang their clothes on the hangers and and put them up in you know up in the air, and then when they came down, they'd lower them and put the clean clothes on to go home because they were so dirty. Oh no! <laughs> no yeah, I yeah. I have to. Uh, we, I'll show you some information about that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, they didn't do that. They showed yeah. us the lunch pails and other things and how they mm-hmm. had their area where they put their lunch pail. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget. Um, Rate them down with rocks to make sure the rats yeah. didn't get in them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I put rocks on so the rats couldn't get in. And I'll never forget before we went in the mine, our guy told us, he said, you just 
always remember you're under the mountain. Yeah. Whenever you go in a mine, you have to always keep in mind you're under the mountain. Yeah, and I think what people need to know, too, is that especially back then, coal was the only way to heat your homes, to run your furnaces, to run your uh, cooking stoves. I mean, it was well, very important. We- yeah. It's really important. That's one of the things that we try to do with Redneck Army. We call our comps, we call it Deadwood Meets the Wire. Because if you know the yeah. wire, the wire was about how this whole system created these drug dealers and the and the cops. And that's what we try to tell. I was like, look, this is more than just some guys in West Virginia getting in a fight with some other guys in the mountains of West Virginia. Redneck shooting some, each other. Yeah. yeah, it's not just rednecks shooting each other. I mean, a lot of this is the World War One drove the demand for coal through the roof. Mm-hmm. You know, this all really started with in 1890 when the Norfolk and Western Railroad built a, a, a line through the Tug River Valley and a bunch of people from other states came in and started buying up the land. And so most of the owners of the coal mines weren't native West Virginians. And so in a way, it was kind of like globalism. They yeah. didn't care about the people. They didn't care yeah. about the natural resources. They just wanted to make as much money as they could. But yeah, yeah World War One driving the demand for coal through the roof really mm-hmm. just changed everything. Well, I think it's a great example for writers who want to create something that's going to be well-received of what you've done is you've done your research, the history, you know, the whole backdrop, you've done your location scouting, you really know everything that you could possibly know about the environment. And then in the middle of all of that, you've created these amazing characters. So it becomes like Mark said about the people, it's about the people. And that's where the story becomes very dramatic. We had a Um, TV writer friend early in the process tell us, and this is good advice to pass along. So Adip said, just remember that you're writing a television show and it has to be a good television show or you'll never get it produced and no one will ever hear your story. So if you have a conflict between anything else and the needs of a good television show, he's like, even with like the history, you know, as long as you're sticking with the themes and kind of the major guideposts, do what you need to do to make it a good television show. Sometimes you might have to telescope events or you might have to combine characters or something. But right. I mean, that was what he said. He's like, if it's not a good television show, you're, you're never going to make it. So no one will will hear this story. Well, you got some good advice traveling through your friends and meeting people at these various events. What advice can you give people about about when to pitch? I always get asked, how soon after I have my script do I start pitching it? Do I pitch it really early on? Do I pitch it before I'm finished? Do I mean, can you give them some advice about the timing? How do you feel about that? Practicing your pitch, as soon as you have a pilot that you feel comfortable with sharing and feel really good about, send it out to your industry friends, send it out to your trusted colleagues to get notes and feel like you're to the point where you feel really solid with it and have a pitch deck, I'd start practicing that pitch to those friends and colleagues or going into the festival you know, circuit. Because there's a lot of festivals where you can get notes on your pitches. And even Catalyst has Pitch World where you can mm-hmm. go pitch a project and get industry feedback on how it went, where you need to hit you know, more information or just really anything, which is so helpful to go out there before you're actually in a room with with industry people trying to sell your shit, having said it over and over again. And it kind of is, I think this is where acting background comes in handy because it is being able to present everything that's in your head, present your ideas and present it in a way where you're, you feel confident 
saying, because I, I know a lot of times that can be intimidating. My recommendation is as soon as you feel confident in your pitch deck and your pilot, pitch it to a bunch of friends. And then once you feel comfortable with that, then I think, why not get the word out? Why not go try to pitch it to get it sold? Mark, yeah. what do you think? Yeah, backing up Whitney and, and just to kind of clarify here, I mean, cultivate your friends, cultivate your industry friends. That's one of the best things about festivals and things. Go meet other people whose opinions you trust. And what I tell people is find the people that love you enough and respect the craft enough to give you honest notes. That's the word, really is honest. That's one of the, the great things about a partnership and writing together with someone. And I mean, one thing I love about working with Whitney is that Whitney gets it. And, you know, you always want to be kind when you're giving notes, but you want to be honest and just say, oh, you know what, do we really need to say this here? Mm. You know, or this just isn't quite working. But you can't just go ask your mom and your best friend from high school to read it because they don't really know what the industry's looking for. And plus, they, they're they just going to tell you they love it. And that's not helping you. You really need to run it through as many rounds of notes with those sorts of people as you can. There are paid services out there that do notes. Some of them are good. That can get really expensive. I don't really do those. I mean, we've been just really lucky in in getting out and meeting people. And when you've got people that know, you know, telling you this script, the script is ready. Yeah. Then then take it out there and don't be afraid to take it out there. Yeah. And just understand you're going to get beaten about the head and shoulders. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, that's, that's just true. the way the industry works. <laughs> that's true. You are. You're going to get. But you know what? I think you've got something really good there. Talk to me about the Bible when uh, you're you've done. I think you've laid out a lot of episodes, right? How does all of that work? Can you tell people how that, how you create your Bible and why it's important? Find people that know how to do it and ask them to help you. (laughs) That's (laughs) a lot of work. That we we did it um, uh, again, just through our contacts. We, uh, and, and to, to Catalyst Horn again, Catalyst set us up with a couple of people who are, that's what they do for a living. They they do pitch decks and they consult with people on pitch decks and, And We've been working with them on it because, I mean, it's it's hard. I mean, you're trying to communicate what you want to see in the show. And at the same time with the visuals, you're trying to show what you want the show to look like, you know. But at the same time, you can't do like a 50 page pitch deck because no one's going to watch it. I mean, no one's going to read it. Well, and also if you do get picked up. Your script, your pilot, and the ensuing episodes are going to end up in the writer's room. Right. And they're going to start breaking it down and they're going to start manipulating characters. And everybody in that room is going to want to create a new character because they get residuals on it. So you can only go so far before you're encroaching on the creativity that's going to happen in that writer's room. Do you want to talk to emerging writers about what happens in the writer's room? Yeah. So what's going to happen? And we'll just kind of take the example of a streaming service. So a showrunner brings the show to a streaming service. The streaming service buys it. First thing they're going to do is they're going to agree on how many episodes season one is going to be. And then they'll put together a writer's room. And so the showrunner is going to come in and go, here's the show that we're doing. Here are the episodes that we're doing. You're going to character arc everything, story arc everything, and work it out. And then typically what happens is then episodes will be assigned to the individual writers and then everybody will write them. They'll come back together. Once the showrunner's good with the scripts, then they'll take them back to the studio. And once the studio has greenlit them is what it's called. 
then they'll go into production. So that's for a streamer or for premium cable. If you're working for network, what happens is they buy the show, they put together a writer's room, you go into production. So the writer's room is actually writing the episodes that are going to shoot in the future. So they start with episode one. Typically, they shoot for like two weeks. So you'll go in as a writer's room. You write like the first couple of three episodes. The studio green lights them. They go into production. Whoever was the lead writer on that episode, they will go to set. And they'll be the own set writer for that particular episode. So they'll go to Chicago or wherever you're shooting. So they're pulled out of the writer's room and they're gone there for two weeks. The rest of the writer's room, then they're working on like episode four and episode five. And so typically a network show is 22 to 23 episodes. So do the math. You're working a writer's room for like 46 weeks out of the year. And you're literally writing the shows that they're going to shoot in a couple of weeks. And it's one of the things to me is just really great about television writing. I mean, you've got a deadline. Yeah. They're going to shoot a show in two weeks. Yeah. You got, you got to finish Absolutely. Script, You got to cast it. You got to keep going because they're not going to say, oh, you know, I mean, I know back in the day with shows like Moonlighting, they had some some problems with things and they would just like take a hiatus for weeks at a time. They don't really do that these days. It's like you writers figure out how to get us something to shoot in two weeks. Yeah, it's a lot of so, pressure. And then on some of these series, that's why you'll notice that there's more than one director. That's why they have different Because directors. they can swap the schedule and keep things moving really yep. fast. So because the writers are in the room. If you've ever been in one of those rooms, there are, there's sticky notes and index cards. And I mean, even despite the digital age, there's still stuff all over all the walls. Well, it's very visual. Um, there is a lot of pressure. Yeah, depending yeah. on the showrunners and their and the writers, there might be toys, games, snacks, whatever they need to kind of keep that process going because they're they're in that room eight, 10, 12 hours a day. <laughs> it's like know? jury duty for writers. <laughs> yeah, and we all have our different things. But yeah, you're you're right. A director is going to come in and direct the episode, then they're going to go into post on mm -hmm. that episode, mm -hmm. and then they bring in a new director. Mm -hmm. And it's actually yeah. one of the big differences between film and television. The saying is in film, the director's king. In television, the writer's king. And the showrunner. Yeah. The showrunner's king. And the on some shows, the director's not even above the line. The director's yeah. not making creative decisions. They're just yeah. coming in and implementing the plan, the vision for that particular episode. And then they move out. Yeah. So if yeah. you're thinking, if you are a professional writer and you are thinking about getting a job in a writer's room, do some research and find out whether or not those people like each other. And if they fight a lot, yep. <laughs> what kind of life you want to live? It really makes a difference. Or so you just <laughs> you've gone really far with the reaction to Redneck Army. Do you guys have agents or managers involved or are you doing all this yourself? And do you recommend people try to get an agent or manager or or does it matter? We have talked to managers. We have a producer that we're mm -hmm. working with, and we've got mm -hmm. some other people. In, in screenwriting, you want a manager. A manager is the person that works with you on a day-to-day -day basis and helps you develop the material and sets up meetings for you. And then an agent kind of comes in and finishes the deal. Yeah, negotiates um, the, the actual deal. We know people. Although managers aren't supposed to do that, but I know when I was managing, I I was kind of pushy about it anyway. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it kind of, and you know, managers, 
produce now a lot these days. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, we've got a producer who's kind of doing what some people would call a manager. Mm-hmm. What you're doing is is you're you're paying them for their connections. Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, and Whitney knows to feel free to disagree with me at any time she does. Yes, you should go out and look for a manager or a producer. You want someone that believes in you and believes in your material. Absolutely. And, and yeah. kind of has the same sort of vision in you. You don't want just someone that's, you know, you're just another name on a list. We have friends who are with big agencies that are, you know, like it. You know, we know some other people. It's like, ah, you get with a big agency, you just become a, another name on the list, you know. Yeah. I think in the sh- beginning, you really have to do a lot of the legwork yourself anyway. You have to bring those deals to the company, to the agency. You know, when you think about it, they don't get paid until you get paid. And if you're a beginner, they could be spending a lot of their time on you when they have huge clients that are bringing in a lot of money that they need to take care of. Absolutely. So I always encourage people not to be disappointed if their agent, you know, be glad you're with a big agency, but but be ready to work really hard and get out there and pitch. And like you said, meet people, go to festivals, get that thing yeah. out there. Exactly. Um, no one's yeah. ever going to have the time to, to, to spend on your career like you do. Yeah. So even if you've got a rep, you still need to be out there shaking the bushes. And another piece of advice to tell people, if you if someone if someone wants you to pay them up front, walk away. No, that's no. What you no. just said, they mm-hmm. get paid when when you sell your, your show, not before. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You know? No, I I think that is just, that upsets me even thinking about it because there are people that try to do that. And if somebody is not experienced, but I need the help, you know, so if that person actually has to get paid up front, they don't know what they're doing. Number one, they don't have the context. Number two, and you're just going to waste your time. So that's, that's my opinion on it. Just remember, first of all, it's all about good material. Good material is going to find a way. But secondly, you're selling yourself. So you want to be somebody they want to work with, particularly in television, because you're hoping that you're working with these people for years and years and years and your show goes on forever. Don't don't be a jerk because they'll just move on to the next script. Yeah. And, you know, when you're a beginner and this is for the beginners, a lot of beginners will write a script. They'll get really attached to it. And they don't want anybody to tell them what to do with it. They don't want to accept any changes. They don't want, they want to get involved in casting. They want to get involved in, in all of these things that a network is going to want to do. So I, I always tell people, maybe the first time out of the gate, you should pick a script that you don't love as much as the one that's closest to your heart and yeah. use a really good script. But Use one that you're willing to make some compromises on because you're not going to be able to have final say on all the creative elements straight out of the gate. Spike Lee, the king of indie filmmaking, in his master class says exactly that. He says Does your he? answer to everything on your first script is yes. Yes. Because yeah. your first script, you just want <laughs> to get in it. the yes. door. You know, he's yeah. like, just get in the door. And then he's like, he's like, I didn't bring Malcolm X at the beginning. They weren't going to let me make a three hour movie about Malcolm X when I was a nobody. You got to yeah. get in the door first. And his second piece yeah. of advice is, is feed everybody well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The other thing I tell newcomers is because I've had some people say, well, I don't want to be a, an intern in that room. I want to get paid. And I tell them, listen, I know a lot of very, very famous showrunners who started out bringing coffee and keeping their mouths shut and not saying anything and just listening. And then they would start 
maybe whispering in the ear of one of the writers and give them some ideas very discreetly and not expect to get anything in return. And pretty, you know, pretty soon after a few years, they're running the room. It really is all about relationships because it's if anybody that says they did it by themselves is lying to you. It's just not the way the business works, right? Wherever you are, whatever your job is, do it well and do it like it matters to you. Yeah. People will notice that. And but I have to tell you, it's why I met you guys, because everybody who knows you, we're talking about number one, they're so talented. They're so good at this, but they're so <laughs> nice. I love those guys. <laughs> and and it's true. And and I think that's why you are going to find a home for this and you are going to be very successful. And uh, I do hope you break a leg with I just, it. <laughs> I just ride Whitney's coattails. <laughs> she, she's, she's, she's talented. Everybody likes her. I just kind of like tag along with her. I don't know. I think <laughs> Mark and I joke all the time, though, just one, our project, but like any project and just being in this world, it literally takes an army. It takes, yes. I mean, we would not be where we are right now without every single person we've ever met or gotten advice from. I mean, it literally, it, it takes an army. And, we and in this that. case, it takes a redneck army. It takes a redneck army. <laughs> yeah. And I forget who, a couple of things. Somebody told us once, they said, remember, if you've got a really good script, everybody wants to put a fingerprint on it so that they can say <laughs> they had something to do with that. And then somebody else, I don't remember who it was that told us, they said, listen, the system is set up so that by the time a script gets to me, I know it's good. Mm-hmm. So I'm not looking for a good script. They said, I'm looking for the person that I feel like if I tell them no, they're going to keep going because oh, yeah. this matters to them. And like that's and they said, that's the person that's going to make it in this business. And that's what I'm looking for. Yeah. But they were saying it's like, you know, we've got the I mean, you have to go through a bunch of gatekeepers with your script. And so this guy was like. By the time it gets to me, I know it's good. Maybe it's not what we're looking for. Maybe it is. So, but the question of quality is not what I'm looking for. So the main thing is I'm looking at you yeah. to see, do yeah. I want to work with you? I think just being tenacious and resilient and determined. Cause I, I know there's so many scripts and shows and it takes years to get that made. Like how long yeah. did it take between Gambit? Wasn't it? 40 years. 40 years. That like novel that? came out back in the eighties. Yeah. And yeah. then went kept through, going. Kept going. Went through several different versions and then Heath Ledger bought the rights. And then unfortunately what happened to him happened. And yeah, it was 40 years before Scott Frank got it and got so it. Sometimes it. It's good to remember it may not happen right now for me, but if I just keep going, if I keep that hope and if I keep it alive and am determined enough, it's going to happen. I think if you, you just keep on, they will find a home at some point. It will. And so tell right, people. Right, 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 right. Yeah, you, I mean, you've really given us some good advice, you guys. I, I, I really appreciate it. I do want to have you back on to talk more about what you're doing in Nashville. But that's another episode of <laughs> OWC Radio. So I do hope you can come back on because you're doing some wonderful things as well as all of your writing. And we'll talk about that hopefully in another interview. Where do people go to find out more about Redneck Army and about the two of you? Well, they can go to either the Blacklist or Coverfly, either one, if they know those two. Uh, And then on Instagram, we've got the Instagram account. Redneck Army Official. There you go. There you go. Check it out there. And then both of our personal pages, we we tend to to talk a lot about like what we're doing here in Nashville and then also the Redneck Army. So I think the main account is Redneck Army Official. Well, tell us what your two personal pages are and spell it for for us so that people can find it. 
Of course. So mine is Whitney Ray, W-H-I-T-N-I-R-A-E. It's a little different. <laughs> and mine is Mark Brown, Underbar, Nashville. My name is much go. more boring than Whitney. <laughs> 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 My mom was unique when she's sure she spelled it. <laughs> Try going through life with a name like Serena Catania. <laughs> Yeah, but Beautiful. It sounds, but you it spend your whole life. This is going to sound really stupid, but to me, your name sounds like a dancer. You know, everybody's always told me I sound like a ballet dancer. Yes. <laughs> Maybe in another life. Maybe in another life. Well, Mark and Whitney, I, I'm so happy to have you on, and I will have you back on again soon. And I do recommend everybody to check out Redneck Army because I have a very good feeling that this is going to go far. And I, I wish you all the best with it. You have a wonderful day. And thank you, uh, thank you everybody, I'm for listening to OWC Radio. 